Hello and welcome to Small Screen Science, the podcast where we look at the science behind some of our favourite TV shows. I'm Karen. I'm Emma and this episode is called Crime Scene Science because we're looking at Silent Witness, one of my all-time favourite shows. Oh, I love it. (laughs) Oh, I do love it. I can't help it. Anything crime, I'm here for it. I'm ready to binge. Yeah, I have to say this, um, you know, since about, was it about the last six years or so when we've had Jack and Clarissa in, it's just been brilliant and i've oh, loved the it. dream team yeah, yeah. <laughs> clarissa is so funny i just love her and i'm gutted that she's leaving but you know hey ho oh i know it's not going to be the same without her but you know it is on season 23 or something yeah i'm, I'm sure there's true. plenty more yeah. <laughs> <laughs> plenty more new people that will be awesome yeah it doesn't even it's not even just tv shows i, mm. I love crime books anything yeah. crime podcasts but i'm i have to admit i'm actually totally terrified of like every time I go for a walk in the woods by myself I'm so scared that I'm going to stumble across uh, a body or some horrible crime scene really I don't yeah oh that's how it always happens though doesn't it like you're just like going about your day you're walking along by the river and then you see someone floating in the river or like it's always dog walkers isn't it that find oh, bodies in the woods yes yeah so they so they like freddy freddy come back freddy and then comes back freddy with an arm a decomposing oh, arm. sorry it's freddy the dog <laughs> Yes. <laughs> not, not your poor husband. <laughs> no, 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 no. And then uh, Freddie comes back with a with half a mouldy arm in his mouth. And then the next scene, it's all crime scene tape, flashing lights, the yeah. works. Mm. Cut to the start of the drama. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I do, I do get the fear, but I'm perfectly happy watching it all on TV. Yeah, love it. Absolutely love it. So this week in our foray into the world of forensic science... We have got some fantastic interviews. And they really are brilliant. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And, and all of our episodes have been brilliant fun to research and record, but this has been a particular highlight of mine. First, we're touring a crime scene house, which is staged and used by the University of the West of England Forensics, like their teaching courses, in order for them to understand what actually happens when detectives enter a crime scene and how they process a crime scene. Which is brilliant. And then we, even more excitingly, take you back to the lab where we get to meet the expert who works with the Silent Witness crew, which is just, honestly, he's really, really interesting. It was an amazing interview. So, so interesting. What an amazing opportunity to be able to ask all of the silly questions that you've always wanted to. And we did ask some silly questions. (laughs) (laughs) It's a little spoiler alert for later on. (laughs) And don't forget, um, throughout the episode, we're going to sneak in as many Silent Witness cliches and forensic science jargon as we possibly can. So look out for those. We'll give you a list at the end. Okay, well, let's get started, shall we? Um, I say that we dive straight in. We need to channel our inner Nikki and Jack from the Lyle. Absolutely. Because um, we've got to go and, you know, we, let's go and explore a crime scene. Time is always of the essence when exploring a crime scene. Yeah, we met uh, Helen Green at the University of the West of England, and she took us on a tour of this small house that they've actually got on campus. Um, and this house is set up so that each of the individual rooms are crime scenes, and that's where they teach their forensic science students. And actually, when we went there, they were just setting up for an assessment and she showed us around. She pointed out the evidence um, and she explained some of the proper scientific techniques and methods used by forensic scientists. So, OK, pop your shoe covers on, Karen. We don't want to contaminate the crime scene, the fake <laughs> I one. See what, I see what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> right, so we've got four, four rooms in the house. We've got this one here, which is currently being set up for um, a crime. So you see... And you tried on it, then you oh, see. Be careful I'm where you're walking. <laughs> I see your footprint. So, 
So the, the popular misconception is a footprint. So that would be something you'd make in the lab as a Ooh. as a control with yeah. a foot. So that's a footwear mark because it's produced by footwear, and we don't know who made it. So it's oh. a mark. There you go. I've learned something already. Getting that wrong so, for years. <laughs> and the same with fingerprints. People go, "Is a fingerprint?" And you hear that quite a lot on TV. It's a fingerprint. It's not a fingerprint because we don't know who made it. Fingerprints are elimination ones we take at the, at the police stations. Oh. Finger marks, what you find in scenes. So we've got a footwear mark there. Um, we've got over here, we've got a can on the floor, um, which potentially could have DNA on it or finger marks as well. We've got a threatening note. We could look at the oh gosh, yes. ink on that. We could also look at, uh, there's a technique we can use called magnetoflake, which is for, for porous surfaces. And it's like a, it's like a, a aluminium powder on, on magnetic beads and you wipe it over the surface and it produces lightning marks that you can't see. Oh, okay. mm. So there might be finger marks on that as well. And then we've got some broken glass here mm. and right next to that is some blood. So this person who broke the glass potentially could have left their blood at the scene. We could test if that's blood or not because people go, oh, it's bloody. How, how do you know it's blood? You haven't tested it. You can't tell whether it's blood or not because... Just by looking at it, it could be any red stain, it could be wine, it could be Ribena, it could be anything. And as blood dries, it gets darker, it could be chocolate. So we can do a test at the scene, it's called a presumptive test for um, for blood, using something called a heme stick. So there's a chemical in blood, um, in the, the heme part of it, that acts as a peroxidase. So if you remember back at school, yes. when you used to do uh, oxidising... Um, reduced agents and oxidised agents so the reduced agents colourless so when you have blood present and you add water and hydrogen peroxide it breaks it down to produce a droplet of water and an oxygen molecule which then binds the chemical making it oxidised and it changes colour oh okay so what, what colour would it end up? So it goes green. Ah, okay. So you have, there's a number of different tests you can do, but this one goes green. And one of the things we normally see when people are looking for blood as well, especially on TV shows, is shining the light. Can you, can you walk me through that process? Yeah, so there's lots of different lights that you can use. Um, you can, we've, got, we've got some torches here at UE that we use for looking at different things. So uh, if you've got a blood, you're looking for blood on a dark surface, for example, you'd use an infrared light because okay. blood will absorb the light so it looks appears darker uh, if you've got washed surfaces and you're looking for blood then you could spray a chemical on it called luminol and then you use a uv light so that's people think it's a fluorescence it's not it's what we call the chemiluminescence okay. so it's slightly different it's a chemical reaction that's causing the fluorescence so we have got some crime lights and we put the goggles on and you don't need any kind of luminol or anything you can just put the, the goggles on and shine the torch around oh, okay um, and we thought, because we use this wall here, this wall we use for blood patterns. Oh, yeah. So we use this blood spatter. Most people say splatter. It's not. That's what you do when you're cooking sausages. You splatter the wall. <laughs> okay. okay. I've been saying it wrong this whole time. <laughs> so it's blood spatter. So we do blood spa spatter patterns on that wall because that's a, if you look, that's a shiny surface. Mm -hmm. so we specifically asked for that to be a paint that we can wash. Mm -hmm. So we decided to shine the torch on there because it looks clean, doesn't it? It does, yeah. And there were hundreds and hundreds of blood, overlaying blood patterns on there that we <gasps> made over the years. So our cleaning, even though we use um, biochemical to get the blood off, obviously, because it's wow. for health and safety. That's really interesting. You yeah. can see it. Um, there's been cases where uh, people have painted over a wall. Even if you paint over it, you can actually get... A DNA profile from the blood if you can use torches to search for them and on clothing as well we use it at clothing so if you even if you wash something you might still get have DNA on there or blood and we can use different light sources to show where things like seminal fluid are so 
that's you again, fluoresces, seminal fluid fluoresces in UV light. God, you can't get away with anything, can you? No. So they help you identify where the DNA will be and then you can go and take the then sample. Then you can go and take the sample, yeah. Brilliant. But obviously you have to do controls. Most people don't think about controls because the, the question these days is not if the DNA profile is there and who, whose DNA profile is, is it. It's a question of how did it get there. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you've got the blood stain on the table. Yep. So you swab the blood and collect that because you're directly taking it from that. You'd also have to do a controlled background, so you take one from around the blood source because if the profile's not complete and it's degraded, they might say, oh, well, um, my client actually touched the table, but it's not, it's not that. How do you know it's come from the blood? So you would have to do a background swab to check that there's no other DNA present on that particular surface. That's, that's all these things blood. that don't show up on TV. <laughs> all these things you don't see on TV and the painstaking hours they do documenting it as well. Obviously, there's lots of writing involved in crime scene investigation. So most people think you go and you just collect the evidence. But unless you've got a recordable trace way of showing that in court, it wouldn't get thrown out. Does it frustrate you then watching um, a lot of kind of crime dramas on TV if they're not doing things exactly as they really they do in life? Yeah, it does frustrate me quite a lot because I think uh, the public expectation of science... Um, and how it's used in the judicial system could be skewed slightly. They think everything can be solved by science and it can't. It can help um, inform a jury of what could have occurred, but the only people that really know what happened are the people it's happened to. So if you've got a person who's dead, then the only people that know what happened at that scene is the person who's dead and the person that committed that crime. And it's very rare you get people coming in and saying, oh, this is exactly what happened. I'll tell you all about what I did and how I did it. Mm. So it's really difficult and it's quite frustrating because people think, oh, well, the DNA's there, they must have done it. Or, oh, yeah, their footwear was there, they must have done it. But there might be another explanation as to why it's there. Karen, we'd be really rubbish forensic investigators. We got told off for treading on evidence and using all the wrong terminology <laughs> within 30 seconds of walking into the fake crime scene. Yeah, I know. Sorry, it was all my fault. I nearly stood on the nearly stood on the footwear mark. Yeah, not, not a footprint, not yeah. a footprint. And all of us say blood splatter rather than blood spatter. It's really difficult to get, really difficult it to get is. that one right. It is. And one of the other things she mentioned as well uh, was Locard's exchange principle. Yes, which I think most of us will will actually realise from from shows without we would pick that up without even realising it. Mm. Um, So this is named after Edmund uh, Locard and he was a French criminologist. And he was actually known as the Sherlock Holmes of France. <laughs> oh, what an accolade. Yeah. I'd like that on a badge. That would be good, yeah. wouldn't it? Um, and he, you know, he set up this crime scene lab in Paris and everything. And he was really quite famous. But he was the one that came up with a theory that whenever two objects come into contact with each other, an exchange of materials occurs between them. And this is one of the basic fundamentals of forensic science. And it, you know, it solidifies the importance of of trace evidence at a scene. Mm. Right. So like every contact leaves a trace, doesn't it? You pick up something wherever you go and you also leave a part of yourself wherever you go. Yeah. So uh, Helen talked to us about, um, you know, when you get on a bus and you you sit down on a bus, you know, you will be picking up traces of the person who sat there before you and you will be leaving traces for the person that follows. Which just made me feel really grim and less inclined to get on a bus. <laughs> oh, horrible. So this is this is often when you see kind of on Silent Witness, uh, you'll see them taking loads of photographs. And when they spot something on the body, if they manage to see like a small fibre or perhaps a hair, that's the thing where they, they grab the tweezers and they bag it because that could be trace evidence and that could have come from the old uh, 
every contact leaves a trace. Yeah, absolutely. So you can figure out where they've been and maybe who they've come into contact with. Yeah, and I think that's key as well because the, the where they've been, you know, because it might not be the perpetrator. It might just tell you that the body's been moved from one place to another, for example. Yeah, or you can build up where they might have been in the hours before their death as well and help to paint a bigger picture of the kind of sequence of events that led to led to the old murder. Yeah. Um, so talking about murder, I mean, that blood spatter wall was nice, well amazing. <laughs> so I really had to think about it before I said it. Um, and she explained to us, you know, how these patterns can tell you about what happened. And it's actually quite detailed. It's amazing what you can pick up just by looking at these spots of blood on the wall. And some people, that's their entire job, isn't it? Their blood spatter analysis. That is that is the one thing they do because it can be so complicated and so essential. So, for example, uh, say that you were hit really hard with a baseball bat. Mm. You actually wouldn't break the skin generally on the first hit, but the blood would pool quite heavily underneath the skin. So if you were hit a second time in that same place, the blood is pooled and it's ready. Uh, and that's the time when you typically break the skin, obviously, if you're if you've got some serious force behind you and the skin as it breaks will release the blood droplets and the blood droplets will spray off into the surroundings, probably in this case, hitting a wall and how these droplets, like the shapes that they make when they hit the wall can be used to really kind of figure out the direction from which the blood was flying. And if you, if you pull all of that information together, you can work out maybe where someone was standing. So for example, the size of the droplets can give an indication of how much force was used. Yeah, and what people don't realise is when blood leaves the body, it travels as a ball. And there's a very simple relationship between the size of the ball and the force that the person was hit with that created this spot. So if you hit someone with a lot of force, you'll end up with a smaller uh, droplet and therefore a smaller spot um, and a low force, they'll be much bigger. If they're smaller spots, they won't travel quite as far and that's all due to wind resistance. So by looking at the size of the spots, you can determine how much force was used. And now if a victim, for example, was hit at a 90 degree angle to the wall, you're likely to get a circular spot, a bit yeah. like if you were just to drop something on the floor. Um, but if it if it hits the wall from an angle, the blood spot creates a tail. It, it looks almost like a comma um, as the blood hits the wall and continues to travel mm. down or along the wall. And by having a look at the angle of the tail, the length of the tail and the width of the blood spot itself, you can really use this to work out the convergence point. Um, so say you have seven of these blood spots. This is where you often see experts with uh, bits of tape yeah, or, uh, or bits of string yeah. yeah, or using light pointers to work out where all of these points might have originated from. So then you can work out where perhaps the victim or the perpetrator was standing or when a blow was, was dealt. Struck. Yeah. Um, but of course, the issue is, is in these situations, it's very rare that someone's hit once. And if you're the victim, you're going to be moving around, you know, you're going to be lifting your arms up to protect your face. Um, and if there's multiple hits in this situation, you're going to end up with quite a complex pattern on the wall mm. and in the surrounding area. And just to add additional complexity to this, you know, if you imagine if we go back to that baseball bat again, as you hit someone and then you're drawing the baseball bat back, the likelihood is you're going to create blood spatter all over the ceiling as well. And that can be used to, to look at the angle of attack and, you know, decide, you know, where these actual hits were taking place. And indeed, possibly even the height of the assailant. Yeah, indeed. So blood itself is also a really important source of DNA if we're looking for a crime scene. Um, so let's take it back to the lab. No, I mean, let's take it back to the house. And uh, <laughs> She's done it again. <laughs> <laughs> let's ask an expert. 
And DNA profiling, you mentioned, does that happen as quickly as it appears to on TV? Um, it's, it's more realistic these days because you can actually get a generated DNA profile within a few hours now, but it's not instantaneous. It's not like you put it in an instrument, mm. uh, you press a button and then you get a profile back. Um, it's not that quick. Uh, minimum, I'd say it takes now is about an hour. But when it first started, it was three or four days. An hour is pretty good. An hour is pretty good. Um, it doesn't give you um, how common that profile is within the population because that's a calculation you always have to account for oh, is really? how common that profile is. Is it likely that it has occurred in another individual? So the new technologies, the way that we're moving, it's moved so fast over the last 20 years. You can get generate a profile more or less within an hour, an hour and a half. So technically, yeah, the process itself may take an hour and an hour and a half, but it, that often takes place in the lab, obviously, and they're going to be backlogged with a number of different cases. So it's going to take a while for that information to get to the detectives. Most labs use a process called short tandem repeat analysis to get your DNA profiles. Okay. Now, this involves taking a DNA sample, which is often very small, and amplifying that using something called a PCR reaction, which makes lots and lots of copies of the DNA so that you can analyse it. Yeah, and that's that's polymerase chain reaction, the polymerase chain reaction. And anyone who's studied A-level biology has probably covered that. Fascinating stuff. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, so STR, um, this short tandem repeat analysis, looks at how many times different base pairs, which are building blocks of DNA, repeat themselves or form a pattern in 20 or so markers on certain chromosomes. Yeah, and these repeats vary from person to person. So that can be used as an identifier. And it's a little bit like your individual fingerprint. Um, and with mm. that, let's go back to Helen. And how concrete is DNA evidence? Because obviously when it kind of came into law enforcement, it was suddenly heralded as the, this is the yes or no, you are guilty or you're not guilty. And people, I think, have a real trust in DNA evidence. But is that really the be all and end all? Uh, no, not really, because you can say it definitely came from an individual. The probability of coming from somebody else is probably about... We always quote a figure of one in a billion that it okay. came from somebody else. But when we do our calculations, it's more like one in a trillion, one in gazillion. It's a very, very high number, the probability of it coming from somebody else. Because it's so sensitive, it's not so much as, is it their profile? It's how did it get there? So it could have been innocently transferred, for example. So if I shake your hand, I will transfer some of my DNA onto you. You then might go and touch another surface and my DNA will get transferred onto that. So it's a question of... How did it get there? Why is there DNA there? What what source is the DNA from? Is it from blood? Is it from skin cells? Is it from saliva, for example? And there's more tests being done looking at RNA, looking at um, the type of cell that it is. So that can be quite important as well. So DNA profiling is, is really great and it can identify an individual. But the question of how it got there is the one that's being asked more and more now in court is it, could it have been instantly transferred in one way or another? So that's really key then, isn't it? Although we can prove possibly that that someone's DNA is there, we can't always prove exactly how the DNA was transferred. But if we can work out what type of tissue or fluid the DNA came from, you can help paint a much bigger picture of what was going on at the scene. For example, if it was venal or arterial blood versus menstrual blood, things like that. Yeah, and, uh, and this is where the RNA analysis comes in. So from school, you will know, obviously, that DNA is found in the nucleus of the majority of cells in the body. Mm-hmm. Um, and this DNA is responsible for coding for proteins. But DNA is very large, so it can't leave the nucleus to go into the rest of the cell for this protein synthesis to take place. So what happens is you get little transcribed parts called messenger RNA, um, and this will copy part of the DNA. Um, and then the messenger RNA will travel out of the nucleus. 
and then be responsible in producing the protein. And if you can analyze these messenger RNA strands, you can work out what proteins the cell was going to produce and therefore identify whereabouts in the body this cell came from. And once you know the type of cell the evidence came from, you can identify the body fluid and help reconstruct the crime scene. So at the end of the day, the only people who really know what actually happened at the crime scene are the victim and the perpetrator. And of course, this is the whole premise of Silent Witness. The victim can't talk. They are the silent witness. Oh, very nice. <laughs> very nice. Now, listen, we, we started the episode with a fake crime scene, mm. but we've never been to a real one, have we? Wait, unless Karen... Something you haven't told me? Um, well, uh, I have to say the evidence against me was purely circumstantial. Oh, <laughs> oh nicely done. Add that oh. to the jargon list. <laughs> no, in all seriousness, to the best of our knowledge, we've never been to a real crime no, scene. No, I haven't. So <laughs> we decided uh, to speak to someone who had been to and worked on many crime scenes. Yes. So we managed to get in touch with Dr. Stuart Hamilton, a real-life forensic pathologist mm-hmm. who has not only worked on lots of crime scenes and performed lots of autopsies on bodies suspected of suspicious deaths. He's also the scientific advisor for Silent Witness. Brilliant. First of all, um, could you take us through the kind of process of going through an autopsy? Yeah, the autopsy is a process that hasn't really changed for many, many years in, in most ways. The pathologist's role is to look at the outside of the body, so looking for any marks of disease, marks of injury, anything that identifies somebody. Having done that and detailed all the injuries externally in some detail, you then move on to the internal examination, and that is physically looking at the organs of the body, again, for injury, for disease, and trying to come to a conclusion, if possible, as to what the medical cause of death is. You then have the additional tests that are done. So histology, you look at tissue down the microscope, again, for more subtle evidence of disease. You do toxicology to look for drugs and poisons. There may be other specific additional tests in specific cases. Uh, We're recording this in the era of coronavirus. So if somebody were concerned that that was an issue, obviously you could send off samples to be tested in that way. And then the more pompous of us, I include myself in that group, would say that the most important thing is then to draw conclusions. It's all well and good seeing things and finding things, The pathologist's main job is then to interpret them and to come up with a logical conclusion as to what's happened to somebody. Why are they dead? What sort of injuries do they have? How would they be caused? And that really is the crux of what we do. That's what takes the years of training to get us to where we are. And so part of your job is also consulting on silent witness, isn't it? How do you go from being a forensic pathologist to also being a consultant and a scientific advisor on one of the biggest TV shows? Um, I'm proud to say I was invited to do it. Um, Goodness. How do you get that call? (laughs) I I have no idea, to be perfectly honest. I'd done a couple of TV programmes of sort of talking heads type things, talking about historical cases. I got a phone call from the producer at the time who said, would you like to come and meet us and have a chat? 
which I thought sounded rather nice, realising afterwards that that was basically a job interview. Then I was uh, asked to consult. I thought it sounded like fun, and I've been doing it for six or seven years now. It's still quite good fun. How does it work? Do you get sent a script and you you have to go through the script or do you get involved at the writing stage? Um, It depends entirely on the writer. Some of them will come to us and say, this is the sort of thing we want to do. How do we make it work? Other times you will get sent a script and then have to go through it and go, well, yeah, you could do that, but it would be difficult or that really wouldn't work or actually that's spot on. Um, Some of them have done their research to such an extent you read it and go, actually, it's fine. I think uh, I think you got a bit overexcited and starstruck then and went a little bit off the science. <laughs> I did. I did a little bit. But you've got to ask. You've got to ask. Yeah. Um, so anyway, you're right. Uh, let's, <laughs> let's get back to the science. We're here to talk about forensic pathology uh, and its role in solving crimes after all. After all, yes. <laughs> so the big question and the, and the one that you see all the time on the TV shows, you know, the detectives are always asking, you know, what's the time of death? Because quite often it's key for the alibis. They have to try and work out where everyone was and who could possibly have committed the crime. Mm. And we know it's not really possible to determine, you know, the exact time of death. But there are quite a lot of various scientific methods which we could use to find this time-death interval or the post-mortem interval. And the key is really understanding what happens to the body as cells break down and the stages at which different parts of decomposition occur. Yeah, and I think most people will have heard of rigor mortis. Yeah, so this is the the stiffening of the muscles, uh, making a body really, really rigid. Um, And this happens, it can kind of start to occur after around four hours. It peaks at about 13 hours after death and it starts to fade again. So the body becomes less rigid, somewhere between the 50 and 60 hour mark after, after death. Yeah, but what a lot of people don't realise is there's actually two stages before this one. So you've got alga mortis, first of all, and this is, you know, where the body's cooling down. So you can have a look at the body temperature when you find the body and see if it's still on the cooling phase and yeah. whether it was really recent. Yeah. And then the second phase is liver mortis. And this is where uh, the red blood cells sink uh, under the influence of gravity and you end up with blood pooling. And this looks a little bit like bruising. Um, and this all happens sequentially. So you can kind of, you know, determine at what stage the body's at can give you a, an indication of how long ago that body died. But the trouble is, these processes are affected quite a lot by lots of different factors. They don't happen at exact times, depending on the situation. So quite often you'll see on these crime dramas, they, they'll put the body in a freezer, for example, to try and slow down some of these processes. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Mm. So we decided to ask Stuart how they actually do use these techniques in a real life investigation. I have been quoted in Crown Court to say, as a pathologist, the time of death is sometime between the person was last seen and when they were legally declared dead. Unfortunately, um, and certainly very unfortunately for TV dramas, the more we learn about the biological processes that go on when you die, the less confident we are in passing any comment. Uh, Things like rigor mortis, the stiffening of the body after death, lividity, the settling of blood after death, they're all incredibly variable. Uh, We've even been advised recently that core body temperature has such fluctuations that you probably shouldn't be using it if you're talking in a crown court situation whereby somebody's alibi may depend on when someone died. The fly larvae is certainly a lot more scientific 
And if you can get that done, get an entomologist involved who knows what they're doing, that can be very, very helpful. But in all honesty, in the modern era, things like CCTV, phone data are far more helpful as to whether somebody's alive or dead than me and a thermometer. I think the last time I gave what I thought was an accurate cause of death was late in 2018. And we knew we had a 15 minute window between uh, a lady being seen alive and a call being made to the police that she was dead. She'd been attacked with a hammer and her watch was stopped precisely halfway between those two times. So I was fairly confident from the rather Agatha Christie broken watch that (laughs) that's when it occurred. Um, But that sort of thing is far more useful, unfortunately, than I am. (laughs) So you mentioned lividity there. Could you go into more depth about about the processes that are happening in the body there? Yes. um, Lividity is a very interesting phenomenon for the likes of me. So when you die, gravity will impose its will upon you and blood will settle down to the lowest point of the body and it will stain part of you that's closest to the ground, a sort of reddish colour. When that first starts, if you move the body, that will move again with gravity, but eventually the red blood cells will actually rupture and permanently stain the body. So you can get an idea of what position somebody's been laying in, and potentially whether they've been lying there for a long time or otherwise. And you can also see imprints if there's pressure from an item that's under a body. You can often see the imprint of that in the lividity. Uh, We've even seen quite a few times, actually, um, certain brands of underwear that have embossed waistbands. You can see the embossing in it. So it can give you a lot of information, particularly if the lividity doesn't match the position in which the body's found, and somebody's saying, well, he clearly just died a moment ago, then at that point you can say, there's something else going on here, I'm not sure you're telling the truth. We might not be able to tell you when the time of death was, but we certainly might be able to tell you that it wasn't when somebody's saying it is. Now, Stuart mentioned forensic entomology there, and in fact, insects and other invertebrates can be used to give a more accurate time of death. Um, So when do you think the first recorded use of forensic entomology was? Um, Maybe like, oh God, I don't know, 200, 300 years ago? I have no idea. It's much further than that. It's actually the 13th century. Oh God. I guess actually like life and death, death is like the one constant that we've always had through every age that we've ever lived through, isn't it? Mm. You can see why people would study death. Yeah, yeah, and um, and there was actually a book published at that time by someone called Song Tzu, and they published a forensic science book of cases. Oh, um, and that was twelve forty seven. So kind of very very Watson writing up oh. Holmes's <laughs> Holmes's cases, and um, that handbook's actually for coroners, and it's still in print today. No way. Yeah, and I'm gonna um, have to get a copy. Yes, and um, I'd say forensic entomology has only really been used on a cons- consistent basis, kind of in the last thirty years or so. Um, so the big question is, how does it work? 
So, as a body starts to decompose, it starts to look more and more tasty to certain types of insects. Mm, um, delicious. <laughs> particularly species like blowfly. Okay, they, they look at a corpse and think, absolutely, that's my next meal. Um, mm. They're really attracted to dead bodies, and they're normally the first ones on the scene. They start to lay their eggs on the exposed skin, for example. Now, mm-hmm. the eggs and the larvae and the pupae, um, they follow quite the transitions between each life stage of the blowfires is very predictable. Mm. So if you find eggs or larvae or pupae on a body, you can use that to work out possibly how long that body has been sat there or has been dead. Yeah, and um, actually, sometimes this can lead to misinterpretation of a corpse. So there's uh, Stuart told us about an example where he was given a body that he needed to do an autopsy on and there were little holes inside the you know inside the body and the assumption was that this person had been shot with a shotgun mm-hmm. and these were shotgun pellets and in actual fact they turned out to be little maggot holes grim which is disgusting <laughs> but there you go not sure which is worse <laughs> and you know what we actually spoke to Stuart for ages so listeners do keep we an did. eye out on our website and our social media because we've got so much more from him there's plenty more that we can share and it's all absolutely fascinating but I have to admit there's just a, there's one last thing I had to ask him because you know how often yeah how often do you get a forensic pathologist on the phone yeah you really really had to ask that and uh yeah and everybody who watches Silent Witness will be thinking exactly the same thing Okay, can I ask a silly question? Yes. How long does it take, if ever, for you to get over the smell? Um, Or have you got over the smell at all? You never get over the smell. Um, I defy anybody to say that they don't mind it. It is always unpleasant. You can always walk into a building and know exactly what's there. What you learn is to ignore it and just to get on with it. Quite often, once you're starting to get into the detail and looking at individual injuries, actually your brain is far too busy processing what you're seeing to think about it. So it never gets better, but you just have to get on and do your job. It's something you just have to learn to deal with or find a different career. So I think if it was me, I'd be finding a different career. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, me too, definitely. Dearie me. I mean, it's been bad enough because I, I obviously working as a science teacher, um, we do dissection of various organs. So, um, you know, if you're doing kidneys, for example, they do absolutely reek of urine. Um, oh. And when you're doing hearts, you get that kind of congealed blood, irony kind of smell to it. So I, I just don't think I'd be able to do a body. grim no me neither i don't even i even sometimes just watching on silent witness it's so realistic i start to get a bit yeah no 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 good couldn't do it Mm. hats off to Stuart. so have we given our listeners too much information now (laughs) or do we do we know too much can we commit the perfect crime uh well actually this was raised as an issue back back in the day when sherlock holmes was written um there was a lot of concern that by drawing attention to i was going to say fingerprints but i'm going to say finger marks at the scene of a crime and how that can be used to identify the criminal there was a real concern that criminals would start wearing gloves and therefore um, not get caught (laughs) which of course they did (laughs) more recently actually there's been something that's called the csi effect another big crime drama Mm -hmm. 
And essentially, this is where prosecutors are now concerned that jurors will demand forensic evidence because there's such faith in forensic evidence in order to convict a criminal. So there might be some cases in which there is plenty of evidence that someone has committed a crime, but there isn't forensic element to it. And and so the rest of the evidence might be not taken as seriously by the jurors. And then defence attorneys are also concerned that maybe jurors will believe that forensic evidence is infallible. So they'll see that there is DNA at the scene and instantly say, absolutely, without any doubt, that person is responsible. But this harks back to everything that Helen was telling us, that yes, DNA can be at the scene, but we have to look at how it got there. Yeah. So there are quite a few concerns about how we interact with crime dramas uh, impacting our potential as jurors, effectively. Yeah, and studies have shown that people do really think that this exists. Um, and one of the concerns is if is that if TV shows, for example, show that DNA evidence is crucial to solving a crime, that means the public might expect the police to collect it and to use it, and they become really, really suspicious if it's not used in evidence. So it's a really popular school of thought, but actually some studies have said that it might not really be the case and these things might not actually be happening in the minds of jurors. So uh, you could say the jury's out on that one. Oh, I see what you did there. (laughs) Well done. (laughs) And actually, that leads us very nicely to the end of the episode. And we're going to have a look at the crime scene vocabulary. We uh, it was this was a bumper packed episode. Yeah, definitely. Um, I've got a really long list in front of me. We got we got a, a few things from Silent Witness itself, and then we also packed a lot of kind of forensic lingo in. So we've got the Lyle. We managed to reference Nikki and Jack. Mm-hmm. Um, every contact leaves a trace. Blood spatter, not splatter, spatter, and yeah. of course <laughs> finger marks and foot marks. <laughs> uh, we got luminol in. We we bagged some things. We took some things back to the lab. We covered DNA profiles. We popped our shoe covers on. We had to talk about trace evidence. We mentioned, of course, in quite a lot of detail, the autopsy. Mm -hmm. You managed to say circumstantial evidence at one point. Uh, We chatted about lividity, rigor mortis and the time death interval. Blowflies made their way in. We tried not to contaminate crime scenes. (laughs) (laughs) We used things in evidence. And of course, my finale, uh, I managed to sneak the juries out (laughs) into the very end. (laughs) Marvellous. So that's about all we have time for. So please subscribe and leave us a five-star review uh, and contact us on Instagram. We are at smallscreensci-pod. Twitter. Smallscreensci. By email. Smallscreensci at gmail.com. And on Facebook. And Small Screen Science Podcast. Basically, search for us and you'll find us. Absolutely. (laughs) So that's it for today. Bye. See you next week. Bye.